All right, well, we are in week two of a three-part series called Words to Live By. Uh, You know, last week we talked about God is trustworthy. And that was our big idea, is that God is trustworthy. And uh, one of our opening questions was, uh, do you trust God? And we went through a bunch of different things on how to maybe to evaluate whether or not we really trust God or not. We talked about our priorities We talked about um, reliance and obedience. We talked about uh, stewardship. And uh, we talked about being flexible and teachable, too. And so we really learned, you know, through that checklist, uh, what our trust was like with God. And we were challenged last week to bump it up a notch, like Emeril Lagasse used to say back in the day. Let's kick it up a notch. And so it was good. It was a good time together. But today, uh, we're moving on. We are leaving the trust of God, although we never really leave the trust of God. But we are going to talk about something else this morning. But before we do that, go ahead and hit the lights and show this video real quick. You might have felt it out west. A 5.8 magnitude earthquake rattles western Montana. Government scientists say it is the strongest to rock that region in 20 years. So far, no reports of injury or major damage, but it did cause a brief power outage in Lincoln, Montana, about six miles southeast of the epicenter. It also caused a gas leak more than 30 miles away in Helena, the state's capital. Montana, no stranger to earthquakes, the largest in state history, occurred in 1959, at least recorded history. Magnitude of 7.3, it killed nearly 30 people. Wow. So who is here? Who who remembers that last year? Man, wasn't that crazy? It, man, it was rattling everything. It was last July, July 6th it was. And uh, I can remember laying in bed and kind of being, you know, waking up. And I thought maybe it was thunder at first. And then I'm like, no, it's not thunder because now my bed is moving. And so I jumped out of bed and I went running down the hall. It was kind of like Star Trek. I don't know if you follow Star Trek at all, but it was like... It was like this. I'm running down the hall, and I don't know what I was going to do, but I ended up being out in the kitchen. I think maybe I was going to catch some plates falling off the wall or something like that. I don't know. I, and then I ran to the window, and I wanted to see the rolling hills, right, like you kind of see. I didn't see any of that. It was dark out. So, uh, But that was crazy. Everything was shaking. It just, it just felt, I felt like I was out of control. How many people was that, was that your first earthquake? Because that was my first earthquake. That was nuts. How many of you veterans have seen multiple or been through multiple earthquakes? Raise your hand. Okay, multiple earthquakes. That's great. That was my first one. Is that the way it goes every time? Yeah, that's, it's crazy, man. That was nuts. Everything was shaken. And I just, I felt like I was seriously out of control. You know, many times... We can feel as if our lives are shaking out of control. Much like that earthquake happened, and those of you that have been in multiple earthquakes, you know what I'm talking about. So the question we have in the beginning here is, what's shaking in your world right now? What is shaking in your world right now? Maybe it's your future. It's a little unsure. Um... Maybe it's your family or friends. You know, relationships are difficult. But maybe relationship is kind of shaking your world right now. Or maybe it's your faith. You know, 
Sometimes we ask those questions, God, where are you? You know, maybe you're going through a difficult time right now and your, your faith is being shook to its core. Or your finances, you know, maybe we talked about finances a little bit ago, but maybe, maybe your balance sheet each month is in the red. I don't know what it is for you, but a lot of times we find ourselves with our world is shaking and we don't know what to do sometimes. I think what we could really use is some unshakable hope. I don't know about you. I know for sure, for me, I can use that unshakable hope in my life. So if that's you, you're not alone. Each one of us can use that unshakable hope in our lives. You know, I was thinking about this topic, and I was thinking about the shaking, and and I was actually reading a new book by Max Licato. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a a pastor, an author. I love his books. I've been reading them for years. And, and his new one is called Unshakable Hope. And so a couple of these statistics I got from his book as I was reading that this, this past weekend. The suicide rate in America today has increased 24% since 1999. You know, we really truly live in an age of despair many times if we look around us. 24%. You know, if a disease would increase like that over that span of time, it would be deemed an epidemic. In North Dakota, the rate has dropped more than 57% in that same time span. Wow. That's crazy. The next statistic is about Montana, if you didn't know. In the most recent period study, 2014 to 2016, the rate was highest in Montana at 29.2 per 100,000 residents, compared with the national average, 13.4 for 100,000. 13 to 29, that's a huge gap. So how do we explain this increase? You know, we've never been more educated. We've never had more tools of technology available I mean, our parents and grandparents, they couldn't even dream of life in 2018 back in the 40s, 30s, 50s, 60s, whatever. We have all kinds of entertainment and all kinds of recreation available to us, and most of us do that. Most of us are educated past high school. Some of us are recreate all the time. I mean, I like to recreate. A couple, few weeks ago, I went kayaking down in Bozeman and I like to take trips and do that kind of stuff, relax. Yet more and more people than ever are orchestrating their own deaths. How could this be? What's the answer? Well, among some of the answers, it must be this, that people have lost hope in their lives. People have lost hope in their lives. You know, sec secularism, and that just means society generally. We, as Christians, have a Christian worldview. Everybody else, is a, that's a secular worldview. So secularism, it sucks the hope out of society because it reduces the world to just those decades between birth and death. And, and that's it. 
Many people believe that this world is as good as it gets. <laughs> Can I tell you something? It's really not that great. Sure, we have fun in our lives, and there's things that we can do to make our lives fun and good and interesting or whatever, but if you look at the world around us, this world is not that great. So we live and we cope day in and day out. But we, as Jesus followers, we, we have hope. We have an advantage because we can read the words of God. We can ponder them. We can study them. We can pray God's word into our lives. God's word is so powerful. And his word is full of promises. And his word is full of hope for each one of us. The stories and the lessons that we can learn, it's amazing. So from the world's perspective, when all hope is gone, despair abounds. From their perspective, when all hope is gone, despair abounds. But for us, every person in here that considers themselves a Christian and calls upon the name of the Lord, as such, we can proclaim that God has given us hope regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your situation today, we have hope for the future. And so if we get acquainted with these promises, if we get acquainted with these lessons and these stories from God's word, our hope increases. Our hope will increase as we listen to the voice, that still small voice of God that speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. So the big idea today, we love a big idea here at Connect. So the big idea, if you're taking notes, you can also uh, take notes online on the app. You can access them. You've got notes coming in. The big idea today, oh, and if you've missed a message, you can catch the message online or on the app. Like if you weren't here with us last week and you want to, you know, get the first one for words to live by, the trusting of God. You can do that online. You can do that on the app. Am I stalling to give you the big idea? Yeah, I am. It's that tension. The big idea today is I have hope. I have hope, exclamation point. I love defining things. You guys know that if you've been around here. I love definitions. love to go to Webster's or that dictionary.com, whatever, and find out definitions. So I looked up hope. Hope is this, to look forward to or believe with anticipation and confidence. With anticipation and confidence. To look forward to or believe with anticipation and confidence. You know, there are many verses in the Bible that talk of God's promises to us and and give us hope in the future. And today, we're going to look at three stories from the Old Testament And we're going to learn a little bit about the individuals involved in that story and the fact that they had hope to get themselves through it. The first thing we're going to take a look at is Daniel. I don't know if you know who Daniel is, Old Testament guy. He was a young Jewish nobleman who got taken into captivity. And I'm not going to read the whole book of Daniel. We're just going to talk about a few things. One of his stories, there's quite a few. But he could interpret dreams, and so... 
when he interpreted some dreams and stuff, then he gained prominence and he was given uh, different positions that put him in authority. And it's really a neat story. Because of his faithfulness to God, because of the things that he spoke out, he was uncompromising in his devotion to God. And everybody respected that. And that's why he gained uh, the positions that he gained. But I want to take a look at one particular story in Daniel in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, fire up your devices. Let's go to Daniel 6. I'm just going to highlight a few verses uh, on the screens. I'm going to do a lot of the reading from my iPad here. So Daniel 6, King Darius decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each of those provinces. Then the king also chose Daniel and two other administrators to supervise these high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. And then here we see in verse 3, because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. That's a great story right there. Just even that. Wow. But you can imagine what the other administrators and the high officials were thinking, right? Here's this foreign dude. Now he is going to be in charge of everything. They were jealous. And so what they decided to do is devise a plan to remove Daniel. And what they decided to do is they went to the king and they said, hey, you should make a decree, make a law that says that the people can only worship you. And if they worship any other gods or any other things, uh, they need to be put in jail and put into the lion's den. And the king's like, okay, I'll make that decree. I'll make that law. No problem. Well, they knew who Daniel was, right? I talked about his uncompromising devotion to the Lord. And so what does Daniel do three times a day as he prays with his windows open facing Jerusalem? So verse 10 says this, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, because Daniel, Daniel knew what was going on, he went home and guess what he did? He knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day, just as he has always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him of his law. And when I read that, I go, and they went straight to the king and reminded him of his law. <laughs> That's how I read that. Those little jerks, right? Oh, yeah. They set him up. They knew what he was going to do. So verse 14 says, hearing this, the king was deeply troubled because they let him know, hey, guess what? You said this law, right? He's like, yeah, I did the law. You know what's supposed to happen when people violate the law? Yeah, I wrote the law. I know what's supposed to happen. Well, guess what? Daniel violated the law, and the king's like, what? You're kidding. So hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening, the men went back together to the king, and they said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law, of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. Boy, they kind of got him, didn't they? So in verse 16, we see this. 
So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. Wow, that's a pretty powerful statement from a king that had no relationship with God, but he saw the relationship that Daniel had with God, didn't he? So Daniel was put into the lion's den. And then the next morning we see this, verse 19. Very early in the morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? And in verse 21, Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in the Lord. And Daniel had hope. We talked about trust last week, but Daniel walked into the situation having hope because he knew that he was innocent. He knew that the Lord was going to protect him. And the Lord sent an angel to do so. Now, little sidebar, the rest of the story, the king put all those people that tried to trap Daniel, they put him in the lion's den. Not a good uh, ending for those guys. And the king set a decree out. This is really cool. I decree that everyone throughout the kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. Man, what an amazing story of God's protection, right? It's an amazing story of God's protection. But number one on your outline here today, the thing that I see through this is that I have hope in difficulty. I have hope in difficulty. Daniel was in a difficult predicament. He was in a very difficult predicament, but he went into that lion's den with hope that the Lord would protect him because he knew that he was innocent. He knew that they were just trying to do this trumped up charges to get him in trouble to remove him. So the question I have for each one of us today is what is your lion's den? What's the lion's den that you're walking in or through? You can have hope walking into that situation. Like I said, Daniel knew he was innocent. And the others were trying to trap him. He trusted in God and he took hope into that lion's den. He didn't know exactly how it was all going to work out. He didn't know what the future held, but he walked in there knowing that God was going to protect him. And he did. When it seems like all the odds are against us, we can still come out victorious. We can. If we keep hope alive in the midst of difficult situations, God will see you through whatever difficulty you find yourself in. That's number one. We can find hope in difficulty. Now we have Nehemiah. He's the second person I want to talk about. Nehemiah. We're going to go to chapter 4 here in a minute, but Nehemiah was an Israelite cupbearer to the Persian king. If you don't know anything about cupbearers, what they did is they brought wine and drinks to the king's table. Part of their deal was to sip it to make sure that it wasn't poison. So it was kind of a, a very vulnerable position, so to speak. But they would taste, carry, 
and serve wine to the king's table. Now, the cupbearer for royalty was not just a personal servant, but he was a trusted advisor to the king. He was a confidant. It was an office of great responsibility, power, and honor. That's who Nehemiah was. So Nehemiah was told from a friend that the wall of Jerusalem was torn down and the gates were burned. And when he heard that, he prayed and he mourned for his people because he was not in Jerusalem. Once again, he was in a different land serving a king. So the king asked Nehemiah, because he saw that he was a little troubled, he said, what's, what's the trouble? And God bless you. And so, no, that wasn't the trouble. Uh, but Nehemiah told him, he said, I just learned that Jerusalem, my home, is in shambles. The walls are down, the gates are burned. I want to go try to help them. I want to go try to see this thing through. And the king agreed. The king's like, all right, you got it. How long are you going to be gone? Nehemiah told him. He said, all right, we're good with that. So he gave him a letter for travel so that he could travel from place to place and wouldn't be stopped or jailed or anything because the king was letting him go. And then he also stopped by the forest on the way and he got wood so that he could rebuild houses and he could rebuild the gates. And the king agreed to all this. Now, Nehemiah arrived on the scene and the first thing he did was he inspected the damage he walked around the whole city, kind of taking inventory, taking a look at what was going on. And he developed a plan with the other officers and administrators and other leaders there on how to fix the wall of Jerusalem. So they started on the wall and they started fixing it. Well, you know it's not going to go great because I'm talking about it, right? So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. We see this in verse 1, Sanballat. I guess that's, it would be cool if it was French, like San Belay or something like that. I don't know. We'll say San Ballet. Uh, was very angry when he learned that they were rebuilding the wall. Now, there's three other people, or there's three people we're going to see here, San Ballet, Tobiah, and Gershom. And they were all regional governors. And so they weren't Jews. They were just regional governors. But they see that, okay, the Nehemiah is on the scene, this guy, from a foreign land, and now he's rallying the troops, and and they're going to fix the the wall, and so they were ticked. So he flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think that they can build the wall in a single day by just offering up a few sacrifices? Do they think that they can make something of stones from rubbish heap and charred ones at that? And then his buddy, Tobiah, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along the top of it. Oh, yeah, that great there. Yeah, he's got, can't believe he said that, a fox. Whatever, dude. He could have thought something better than that, right? All right, so then Nehemiah prayed. And then moving down, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. So the first thing I see here is that Nehemiah was enduring some criticism. And this was from the outside. Criticism from those spectators out there, the regional governors and other people. So they were being mocked. They were being criticized. They were being ridiculed as they began to rebuild the wall. But instead of trading insults, probably like I would have done, what he decided to do is Nehemiah prayed. 
That's the first thing he did. He prayed, and he rallied the workers, and they completed that part of the task. So he wasn't detoured from all that criticism and ridicule. That's cool. So moving into chapter 5 in Nehemiah, we see this. Some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Then others said, we have mortgaged our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get food during the famine. And then others have said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. And we even belong to the same family as those that are wealthy and our children are just like theirs. Yet, we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters and we, have, uh, we are helpless to do anything about it for our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others. And so here we see a desperate situation from the Jewish people now. And in verse 6, it says this. Nehemiah says, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. So he was ticked. But after thinking it over, this is what Nehemiah decided to do. Nehemiah, he spoke out against these nobles and officials, and he told them, You are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. And so at that point, Nehemiah once again got all these people, these landowners who were Jews, they were wealthy countrymen, right? And, and he got them all again. He said, what are you guys doing? You guys, we got people, your own people are selling their children into slavery and servants and stuff just so they can survive. This ain't cool. This is not good. So then they replied, developed a plan, and then they replied in verse 12. He said, they replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing for more from the people. We will do as you say. So here we see, not only did Nehemiah have criticism to deal with, now we see internal struggles and internal problems that Nehemiah is dealing with now. And that God blessed him with the wisdom to develop a plan and to go and, and just be forthright with people and say, hey, this is the deal, man. What are you guys doing? Nehemiah quickly and courageously corrected the problem. So once again, we see something else going on. I want to talk about a third thing here before we wrap up Nehemiah. Nehemiah 6, 1 through 8, those three dudes, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that it had no gaps remained. Though we had not yet set up the doors to the gates... So Sambalet and Gershom sent a message asking me to meet them in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending a message to them saying, hey, I'm engaged in a great work, I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you guys? Four times they sent the same message. Then on the fifth time, they sent a message and they made up something and they said, there's a rumor among the surrounding nations that the Jews are planning to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. So here they're making up this thing because they want to get Nehemiah to stop building the wall and to go and compromise or whatever and, and go meet with them. But Nehemiah is so awesome because right here in verse uh, 8, he says, I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You are making up the whole thing, man. He cut right to the chase. He knew that they were trying to trap him. It's a trap! You probably heard that in a sci-fi movie. It's a trap. He knew it. He could see the trap from a mile away. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. 
So I continue to work with even greater determination. Man, Nehemiah is awesome. And so the third thing we see here is a compromise. He was, they were trying to get him to compromise and to stop building the wall and to go see what was going on. The man, those governors, they were so desperate. They tried and tried and tried to get Nehemiah off task, but it didn't work. Nehemiah was wise in seeing that the plan that they were making up was just a trap. And so later uh, in Nehemiah, the walls and the gates are completed. He stays and he helps organize the people. He makes the people recommit to the Lord because they got a little squirrely like the people always do. And then they occupied and rebuilt the city. Man, that's awesome. But the thing I learned from Nehemiah, there's a lot we can pull out of these stories, and I'm just going over the top. I encourage you guys to read each one of these accounts. But from Nehemiah, I see that I have hope in discouragement. I have hope in discouragement. I'm sure he was really discouraged. And he traveled a long way, developed a plan, and started seeing that plan be executed. Then the criticism came. Then internal problems. And then trying to get off track and trying to get compromised. I'm sure he was feeling discouragement, but he kept pressing through because he had hope. He knew what God's plan, he knew what God had told him. And so he went for it. And he didn't let anything discourage him because he had hope. Maybe you feel discouraged today for a situation in your life. Is there a mountain in front of you? There may be. Has God led you there to the base of that mountain? That's the first question. Has God led you there to the base of that mountain? And now you're looking up and you're thinking, this task is too great. This mountain is too tough to climb. But I want to remind us, anything done in God's name or for God will succeed and it will prosper. It will. If God has led you there to that mountain, you can climb that mountain step by step. Nehemiah faced intense opposition. I mean, think about the task that he was trying to do. From people in the land, from his own people. But despite the opposition, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. I mean, not by himself, but the cool thing is Nehemiah did work on the wall himself. He just didn't, you know, tell people what to do. He was in the trenches with everybody. He overcame the threats by seeking God. He prayed to God time and time and time again. He sought God first, took wise defensive measures, and carried out the plan that God had set before him. Nehemiah kept hope alive in the middle of discouraging circumstances. And we can do the same. I remember a long time ago, about 10 years ago now, Gene and I were really discouraged. Our friends, Russ and Chris, were moving to Bozeman to plant a campus. They were planning Connect Church down there. And we wanted to go with them. We had talked for years on if they ever went to be lead pastor somewhere that we would follow. And we tried. We tried to sell our house. We tried to look for a job. We tried to move down there. But no, we couldn't. We were discouraged. We could not move down there. It was tough, but we kept hope alive because we knew that God had a plan. We knew that God was orchestrating something. We just didn't know what. And then, four years ago, we find out that they want to plant a campus here in Great Falls. And we're like, oh, 
I see part of your plan now, God. So we kept hope alive in the midst of that discouragement. It wasn't discouraging every day, but there were seasons of discouragement that we had walked through. But then we started to see part of God's plan. We kept hope knowing that God kept us here for a reason. And so four years later, we're still here. (laughs) After the campus has been planned and we've moved from downtown over to here, We've just renovated this, and things, man, there's great things going on. You know, it can still be discouraging at times. I mean, we talked a little bit about the finances. That can be a little bit bit discouraging. But here's the thing. We keep hope alive. We know God has us here specifically for a reason. We know that the other leaders are here specifically for a reason, and God brought you through these doors today specifically for a reason. God has a purpose for Connect Great Falls. Can't fully see it, don't fully know it, but we believe it because we have hope for the future. That's what it's about. So number one, we have hope in difficulty. Number two, we have hope in the middle of discouragement. And the last story I want to look at is Hannah's story. You can find Hannah in 1 Samuel And so Hannah was really interesting. Samuel was a prophet, and uh, I'm just going to start reading. I'm not going to give her backstory too much because we unfold it here in a minute. So 1 Samuel 1, 2 through 5 says, Elkanah Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Hannah (laughs) Hannah Panana. How about that? We'll go with that, all right? Hannah Panana. So Panana had children, but Hannah did not. All right? So each year, they would travel to Shiloh and worship and sacrifice the Lord of the heaven's armies at the tabernacle. I love that, the lords of the heavenly armies. That's such a great description of God. So on the days that they presented the sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to Panana, all right? Because she had a bunch of kids. And each of her children, they would all get something to eat. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, although the Lord had given her no children. And so we see in verse 6 that Hannah was taunted by the other wife and making fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same thing. Hannah would be taunted as they went to the tabernacle, and each time Hannah would be reduced to tears, and she wouldn't even eat. So that's the circumstance Hannah found herself in. Now, here we see her dealing with not being able to have children, and that's a tough situation even today. I know that there's many women that have not been able to have children, and it's tough. It's a tough situation. And it was tough back then, but there were cultural ramifications too, because if you couldn't have children, if you were a barren woman, it was looked at being a curse and that you were being punished for some reason. So, but one year, Hannah got up and prayed a simple but bold prayer. And this is what we see in 1 Samuel 1, 19 through 18. You see this. Hannah was deep in deep anguish. Remember, this is years and years and years have gone by and she's been getting all this ridicule from the other woman. She was crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, 
O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. That's something they did back then. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli the priest was watching her. And first Eli came up and said, are you drunk? Because you're just kind of, your mouth's moving, but nothing's coming out. And Hannah's, no, no, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm praying to the Lord. I'm, I'm in anguish and sorrow. And then what Eli said is, go in peace. May God of Israel grant the request that you have been asking him for. And so in verse In the next verse here we see, Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again and was no longer sad. So Hannah prayed a simple prayer. And she received a blessing of the priest at the tabernacle at the time. And she just went back and she was like, All right, God's got this. There's hope right there. There's where hope. So then we read a little bit further down in verse 19 and 20. So the entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home, and when Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea. And in due time, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. What a great story. What a great story of fervent prayer, of perseverance, and of hope that Hannah had. Now, she went on to have five more kids. And so just really interesting, but Samuel was dedicated to the Lord and he ended up staying at the temple and he did, she did what she said she would do. She gave Samuel up to the temple and the Lord used Samuel mightily to be a prophet. And so the third thing I read here, the next thing I see here, number three on your outline, I have hope in distress. I have hope in distress. Hannah says a couple times there that she was in anguish and sorrow, and she was weeping and praying. Are you in a season of distress today? Maybe it's an emotional distress. Maybe it's physical distress. I'm not sure. Hannah was in great anguish and sorrow. She was ridiculed. She was written off. She was mocked, oppressed, but she remained fervent in prayer and hoped God would bless her. The thing, other thing I learned here is that God steps in on his own timing. It was years and years and years went by. So if you've been praying for something for years and years and years, don't give up hope. Keep praying. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep learning and growing. Because God's timing is always perfect. God is never early on our timetable. But God's timing is always perfect. He shows up right on time. Hannah had distress in her life, but she kept hope alive. You know, recently, talking about physical distress, recently my shoulder has been all jacked up. My neck and my shoulder and my back and my muscles have just been all wonky. So I've seen a a massage therapist and I've got the kinks worked out. I'm not quite 100% yet. But you know what this has taught me over the last week and a half that I've been dealing with this? Two weeks now, actually. I really have a renewed empathy for people that live in chronic pain. I really do. 
chronic pain is, well, it just sucks. It really does. There's no other way to describe it. It's bad. So if you're dealing with chronic pain, man, I have renewed empathy for you. It's a tough situation. That's distress, distress, physically distress in our lives. Maybe you have emotional distress in your life. Either way, it's just as debilitating, either emotionally or physically. It's just as debilitating. You can have hope in distress. So I'm not sure where you're at today. I don't know what situation you find yourself in. But you can have hope in difficulty. You can have hope in discouragement. And you can also have hope in distress. And we see that time and time and time again in the Bible. I've just, man, glassed the surface with these three stories of Daniel, Nehemiah, and Hannah. The Bible is full of hope. So if you need some hope in your life, go to the Word. Go to the Word and read what God has to say. And God will restore and renew your hope. You know, maybe you don't have a relationship with God. You know, that, that's, that's the thing. That's the gateway now to this whole hope thing that I've talked about. That's the whole gateway to having hope in these different circumstances we find ourselves in. So I just want us to drop everything right now and pray. God, I thank you for who you are in our lives. God, you are in control. Like I said earlier, you sit on the throne. You are the creator of everything. And you devised a plan for us to give us this hope. And that plan was to send your own son, Jesus, down here to die a criminal's death so that we might have salvation and our sins would no longer be counted against us, but we could have release from that bondage. So we could have this hope for today and hope for the future. And so right now, as we get to the end of our time, I'm just praying for those that maybe have not called out your name. Maybe they haven't connected with you, accepted what you is described as a free gift. I mean, it's a gift to us. With no strings attached, you give it to us. Salvation. And so, if those are there, if those are those here that are struggling with that, God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts. Speak to their minds. I know for me, my mind got in the way for years. Speak to them, clear the mind. Speak to our hearts. God, each one of us has this void in our lives that we try to fill with other things. And the only thing that'll fill that void is you. And what we need to do is accept Jesus. Just pray a simple prayer and be ushered into the family. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm going to pray. And I want each one of us together recite the words after me. Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I deserve death. But you sent Jesus 
to give me spiritual life. I accept that gift right now. Change me from the inside out. Order my future steps according to your Holy Spirit. Lead and guide me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.